You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. And let me just start this last sermon uh, by going back to this summer. Uh, My family received a precious gift from y'all of a sabbatical. And uh, part of what we did during (laughs) those 10 weeks, we did a 6,000-mile road trip. Three kids, a pop-up camper. I'm not sure if that's, that's what a sabbatical is supposed to be or not, but that's what we did for a, a part of that. But we, uh, we went up to Minnesota and then over to, uh, to Mount Rushmore, Grand, the Grand Tetons, Yellowstone, just got to see some really beautiful scenery, some beautiful things along the way. And, uh, you know, we had multiple moments where we were, we were literally in places where you could just look out and see what felt like for miles in all directions. Do you know that scene when, when you're up and you're in the middle of that sort of a place where you look out and it's just for miles and miles you can see? Caleb and I had this running joke because we were in that sort of terrain for, for most of that, you know, month of June. And anytime we were in a place like that, I'd look at Caleb and I'd say, Caleb, this is big country. And he'd look back and say, yeah, it's big country, all right. Just for miles and miles you could see. And, uh, you know, in some of these moments, you'll probably recognize what I'm, what I'm trying to say here. In, in some of these, you know, moments, you would look out and this just a beautiful landscape, right? I mean, just as pretty as, as it could possibly be. And, and there was these, uh, you know, kind of those puffy cumulus clouds, you know, that were just kind of dotted the, the sky. And it was so interesting, the effect that would have on the landscape. So you're looking out at this incredible landscape, and in some parts of that landscape, the, the, the light is coming down with undiminished sort of radiance, right? And, and it's making the landscape vivid and bright, just, just incredible, the colors you would see on it. But in other parts, the, the clouds would be blocking the light of the sun, and it would be faded. It, it would be, uh, you know, in, in the shadows. You, you, you see that scene that I'm talking about? where you're looking at this beautiful landscape. Some is bright and vivid because the sun's hitting it. Others is is shaded and in the shadows and and faded. Looking at that one day, it just dawned on me that that is a a semblance of what the church of Jesus Christ is like. There are some places and some people in the church of Jesus Christ where, where it's as if the, the light of Jesus and, and the presence and power of Jesus is streaming down with, with sort of undiminished radiance. So, so Jesus is shining down and it's bright and it's vivid and it's vibrant for them. The, the, the light is falling and, and some people in some places like that with that sort of unclouded brilliance. But in other places of the church of Jesus Christ and <clears throat> other people among the church of Jesus Christ, they're currently living in the shadows. In some ways, it's as if a chill has come over them. It's as if they're living in, in sort of a faded sort of reality of God. What was once vivid and personal and real with Jesus has faded into like an abstractness. What used to be so real, God used to be so real to them, is now kind of up in the clouds and it's more theoretical to them. Jesus has just kind of lost its realness to them. I love how one commentator put it. He said it this way, the power of God is not evenly, and you might say even the presence of God is not evenly distributed throughout his church either geographically or historically. So if we just surveyed all the churches across the world right now, the presence and power of Jesus would be landing on various people in various places right now in the world in different ways. Some of them in that landscape would be, they're kind of in that undiminished light streaming down from above. The, the personal power and presence of Jesus is just radiant and vivid. But in other places of the church, it's as if it's faded. It just lost its sharpness. 
And that's not only like right now, geographically across the world, but it's also historically. There's moments where God's personal power and presence is felt in deeper and more extreme ways than, than others. And here's one of the dangers I think that presents for any of us as a follower of Jesus. One of the dangers is, is that we'll be under the clouds in the shadows and our eyes will in a way grow accustomed to the darkness there. That in some ways our body will acclimate to the chill of the temperature to the point that we'll lose our desire for the undiminished power and presence of God in our life. Think of it this way in your life right now. Whatever your experience right now of God is, it's it's just helpful for us all to know this. It's not anywhere near what it could be or what it might be. And it's so easy for, for, our, for our desires and for our expectations of God to just shrink down to what is the status quo right now of our lives. That's a danger for, for every Christian. And so I, I want to I finish this set of sermons on the church by really just setting before us all this morning the possibilities of what God might want to do with us with what God could do with us in this time and in this place. I, I wanna leave you this morning with maybe, I, this is what I'm praying for you and me, is that God might, might give us this morning a renewed desire to see the clouds disappear in our life and for God to send a fresh wave of his power and presence into our church, into our area, that, that we would be a people praying like that, praying for what has what, what traditionally kind of in church history been known as revival that we would be asking the Lord for that. Now, what is revival? Let me put this up on the screen for you just so you get kind of a working definition right off the the go. What what is revival? I love how my friend Ray Ortland describes it. He says it this way. Revival is a season in the life of the church (coughs) when God causes the normal ministry of the gospel to surge forward with extraordinary spiritual power. Revival is seasonal, not perennial. So in other words, it's not the way God is always working right now in this world. It's seasonal in nature. God causes revival. We do not cause revival. It is the normal ministry of the gospel, not something eccentric or even different from what the church church is always charged to do. What sets revival apart is simply that our usual efforts greatly accelerate in their spiritual effects. So you're doing the same things, but now it's accomplishing times 30, times 40, times 100 more. God hits the fast forward button. And this blessing spills out from the church to watch over the nations and an ingathering of many new converts to Christ. Now, wouldn't we love to see that happen? And that's what I want to set before you, just to get us thinking about that hopefully desiring that, like to put an expectation and a hope in us that maybe, just maybe, you and I would get to see God do that. Now, here's what I'm gonna do this morning. I'm gonna read through several texts in the book of Acts. And before I read these texts, though, I feel like I need to preface by saying this. When you read the Bible, you're not reading a fictional novel. I'm gonna say that one more time. When you read the Bible, you're not reading a fictional novel that someone just kind of made up. That's not what you're reading. When you read the Bible, you are reading what God is telling us. It's God's words describing his actual works in history. Like, in other words, the Bible is historical. Like the things that you see in the Bible are real people. 
doing real things with God. This is what we're reading in the books of Acts. So when we read through these passages, make sure you're not thinking like this. Man, that's a great story someone made up. No, it's not a great story someone made up. This is the story and the collection of what God has done in history, in this world. So Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. And you can just kind of follow along. If you've got your Bible open, just start in Acts chapter 2. We're going to look at several different passages, and you can just read right along with me. If you don't have a Bible, it'll be up on the screen for you. Acts chapter 2. So if you, if you know the context of Acts 2, the day of Pentecost has arrived. The disciples are in the upper room, and they describe this moment. Of, of literally the spirit of God just breaking into this room that they're sitting in. They said it sounded like a, literally like a tornado, like this rushing wind ripping through the room. And in that moment, they were filled with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit then indwelt them, and Peter got up to preach what is probably the most famous sermon in church history. So he preaches this sermon, and then watch what happens. This is in Acts chapter 2, verses 37 and beyond. Now, when they heard, this is the crowd, when the crowd heard Peter preach, they heard... Uh, this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, here's what you should do. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. Then look at verse 42. So those who received his word were baptized, and, they were, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. 3,000 souls. So I don't know when you read a story like that, what goes on inside of you. I have like two distinct reactions when I read a story like that. Here is one reaction. Yes, I love reading that. I mean, I'm reading a story of, of the power of God just on display. This is a moment where the clouds are wiped away and you have the undiminished power and presence of God land among a group of people. And I love reading that. I mean, it, it doesn't get much better than reading this sort of a moment. In this moment, personal repentance, which is a precious thing. Every time an individual receives Jesus, places their faith in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, that is a precious thing. But in this passage, it's, it's that personal repentance. It goes widespread. It, 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 revival is breaking out in Jerusalem in this moment. God, Watch how God does that. God takes a normal means right? He takes a sermon, something Peter has done probably repeatedly at this point. He takes a, a single sermon, a normal sermon, and accelerates the effects of that sermon. So you have like a times a whole bunch sort of effect to this single sermon that Peter preached. And, and in this moment, 3,000 people headed straight to an eternity forever away from God. 3,000 people meet Jesus and are rescued by Jesus. I love to see those sort of stories, don't you? That's an incredibly encouraging thing to watch. But there's another part of me. So one part is yes to that, but there's another part of me that's a no to that. I think this would be the description of my no. I'm just kind of tired of reading about those stories. I would actually kind of like to see some of those personally. I mean, my no is, I feel like it would just be maybe what you could call a holy discontent. I love reading them, but could... God, could we see a few of those around here? Could we have some moments where we see that happen in our particular time and place? I love that this happened in Jerusalem, but how about South Dallas? 
How about the south side of the Metroplex? What if we saw it there? God, could we, could we please have it here? And, and this is really the question I just want to set before you this morning. If God did that then, why not now? I, if, God, if God does these sorts of things in time and space and history, what, why not now? What, why not now? Acts chapter 4. There's a lot happening in Acts chapter 4. By the time you get to the end of it, the disciples have kind of regathered in a room. And, and here's what you have happen in Acts chapter 4, verse 31. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, was shaken. And they were filled, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. They gathered in this room. They were praying. Now, that's a novel thought, isn't it? We gather together with some people, and we pray. And I don't know about you, but I would just love to be in the room, in the moment, in this time or place when we gather together and pray, and God shows up like that. Where the foundations of the room you're in begin to shake and rattle. And these men and women were filled with the Holy Spirit, and here's what that produced. It produced them going out into the time and place they were in, into the neighborhoods they were in, the city they were in, and talking about Jesus with boldness, with courage. Could we not use some of that around here? I can, if God has done that before, why wouldn't God do that now? Why wouldn't God empower us for those sort of things now? Why wouldn't we pray asking God to do that? Acts chapter eight. <clears throat> Acts chapter 8. <clears throat> in Acts 8, persecution is broken out in Jerusalem. And this has made uh, Christians who were really kind of huddled down in Jerusalem get out of Jerusalem and carry the gospel outside of, of the sort of the city limits of Jerusalem. And so this is what you have with Philip in verse 4 of Acts 8. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did for unclean spirits. Crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. Verse 8. I love verse 8. So there was much joy in that city. So Philip goes down to Samaria. He starts preaching, talking about Jesus. Um, God then does some miraculous things through him. People are listening to Philip. And all of a sudden you have a lot of people receive Jesus, converted, rescued by Jesus. And I love this in verse eight. Here's the change that came about in the city. The, the change that came about in the city is in verse eight. The city went from not much joy to much joy. Would you not love to see our depressed city would you not love to see our really sad city be transformed by Jesus to the point where here's the description of our area. There is much joy going on in that place. Would we not love to see that happen? And if God has done that before, why wouldn't God do that now? Why wouldn't we be praying, asking the Lord, if that's happened in Samaria, could that not happen in Dallas? Could that not happen in our area? Acts chapter 9. 
Acts chapter 9. Starting in verse 36. <clears throat> now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days she became ill and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room since Lydia was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went to them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. And all the windows stood, uh, and all the windows stood beside, all the widows stood beside him weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, rise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up, and he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. Verse 42, and it became known throughout all of Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And it became known throughout all of Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. You know, it's as if when you read the book of Acts, and really the Bible in general, it's as if God is really trying to convince you and I that he can do anything. Right. I mean, that, that, when I read this, it, it's as if God is just saying, do you know how powerful I am? Do you see what I can do in time and in place? Do you, do you see that? And, and, when I, and when you see that, I think it's an invitation from God to, to think, if God has done that then, why wouldn't we pray that God would do something in our area that would cause all of the people in our area to know that God did that? And then for us to be able to rejoice that many people, when they know that, have believed in the Lord. Why wouldn't we be praying for God to do that? I don't know what that is, but why would we pray that God would do things like that here and now? If God's done it then, why not now? Why would we not be praying, pestering the Lord for these sort of moments? And let me go to Acts chapter 19. I'm just gonna slow down. We're gonna read through these 20 or so verses again. I wanna make a few comments on them and point out a few things as we do it. Acts 19. So we're back to the passage that you heard read a few minutes ago. <coughs> it's just another one of these scenes in the book of Acts where God in some way flexes it's when God takes the, the cumulus cloud blocking his personal presence and power from the church's life and from people's lives. It's just as if he blows it out of the way and then you have the undiminished power and presence of God on display. Just another one of those sort of moments. And it starts in verse one. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. Now, a couple of things on Ephesus. Ephesus was a very large city, a very important city in this, uh, you know, time. It had roughly 300,000 people in it. So you're talking a really large, uh, you know, place. And the people in Ephesus were very spiritual people, very much like our day. There were very few atheists and a whole lot of idolaters in Ephesus. And in particular, in Ephesus, kind of the god or goddess of choice was uh, Diana. That was the Roman name, or Artemis was the Greek name. And you had a whole city that in many ways was tied to the worship of this false god, Artemis. So this is Ephesus. So he comes to Ephesus, and it goes on in verse 1. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. Sort of sounds like some Baptist. Is that too far? I am one. I am one so I can poke, right? <laughs> they, they had not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, 
Into what then were you baptized? They said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him. That is Jesus. That's what you should be believing in. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. Now, it's interesting just to think about the origin. This is really the the moment the church is planted in Ephesus. And everything that's about to happen in Ephesus began with Paul stumbling across a group of, I think this would be the best way to think of them, a very religious people. So they're really religious. They've got a lot of external, external conformity going. But at the same time, they're really lost people. They're religious and at the same time lost. They're religiously lost people. They were followers of John who hadn't yet made it to Jesus. So, so they, they, they were partially, you know, partially there. They got some of it. They just hadn't gotten the whole thing yet. Now, I think that is such an apt description for our current culture and context. We have a lot of religious people, while at the same time, they are religiously lost people. They just haven't made it all the way to Jesus yet. So, so this is so prevalent in our, in our culture. Religious, so there's a lot of external conformity. So a lot of people go to churches or would claim to be a Christian, would, would live by the, the title of a Christian, or would, would, would you know, kind of place themselves under the label of a Christian. They probably own a Bible or two. They might even pray before a meal. They might quote some scripture in a convenient moment, right? They know when to sit, when to applaud, when to kind of do this and that. And try. They, they've kind of got the religious external conformity thing down, but all the while they are missing a deep, rich, vibrant love and trust of Jesus. Just like these 12 men in this passage, they have part of it. They're just missing the primary piece of it, which is Jesus. So they have some peripheral edges, but what's at the center of this thing, Jesus, they just don't have that yet. And I just wonder, before we go on, I just wonder if that might be you this morning, if it might be me this morning. We've got part of it. We've got some of the, the external sort of things down but I just, will you just ask yourself the question, do I actually have Jesus? Is there in me a a love of Jesus, a desire for Jesus, a trust in Jesus? And I love what what Paul does with with these guys. He says, you've got part of, you're just missing the primary, but John was here to get you to Jesus. And then they they open up their lives and heart to Jesus and, and they receive him and then he baptizes them right there. And everything that you see happening in Ephesus begins with these religious people, but just people who don't know Jesus yet, actually being converted to Jesus. This is the beginnings of what happens in Ephesus. These 12 men actually meeting Jesus. Then you get to verse 8, and you're going to see Paul's work in Ephesus. In verse 8, it says, and he, that's Paul. Now, one just quick note on Paul. Paul is, uh, in the New Testament, one of the central figures in the New Testament. But it's so important that when we're reading about Paul, we keep Paul in the category of a normal human being. Paul is not something other than you and I. Just like you and I, he is a sinner that has been rescued by grace. And he was a varsity sinner. I mean, this guy killed some folk. 
I mean, this, this, he's, just, he's like you and I, a, a sinner rescued by Jesus. So he, Paul, entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, they withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily then in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So think about what Paul did. This is for two years and three months. The first three months, he goes into the synagogue and he is reasoning with the people there. He's persuading these Jewish people that the the point of their Jewishness is Jesus. He's the culmination of everything that has gone before. He's reasoning. He's persuading them about the kingdom of God. He's persuading them about Jesus. Finally, they just say, Paul, you've got to get out of here. So he leaves the synagogue, and then he goes to the hall of Tyrannus every day. It's kind of a central gathering point in Ephesus. He goes every day for two years, and every day talks about Jesus. So much so that Luke could say at the end of that two years and and three months, Luke could say that everyone in the area, I mean, if, if you're in this area, you've probably heard of Paul and you've probably heard what he's saying. Everyone in the area at that point had heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greek. Paul is laboring, isn't he? I mean, he is putting it on the line for Jesus. This is Paul's work in the text. Then you get to verses 11 and 12 and you see God's work. So Paul was co-laboring with Jesus. He's doing what what his normal kind of ministry life looked like. But then you have God do this, and God was doing verse 11. And, And hear me on this. If we're ever going to see movements of God happen, it's never going to be because of our work. We, we get the opportunity to co-labor with Jesus, but it's never going to be because of our work. It's going to be because God takes our work and then does something with our work, right? And this is what you have in verse 11. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hand of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. So let me just, I, I want to just say this as clearly as I can. The key here in this text goes something like this. Paul is faithfully laboring. Paul's doing what he knows to do. He's persuading. He's talking about Jesus. He is co-laboring with Jesus. So so Paul's doing what what he's, you know, his, his normal sort of ministry labor. And then God does something extraordinary with it. And if we're ever going to see any ministry fruitfulness in our church, in your life, in my life, it's going to be because we labor And then God does something with our labor. God then begins to act in our labor. Now, this passage is descriptive. It's not prescriptive. It's descriptive. It's just describing what God did in this time and place. But it's not prescriptive. It's not saying this is what God does in every time and place. This is how the Lord will do it in every moment. But it is showing what he did in this moment. And I think in some ways it's meant to put a longing in us. God, would you send that sort of power in your presence in our time and place? God, would you please do something now? I don't know what the something is, but God, whatever it looks like for you to put your power and presence on display, God, we would just love to see it. So so God was working in verse 11 and 12. And then you kind of have this excerpt and this kind of uh, almost like a tangent in verses 13 through 16. Uh, Pick it up in verse 13. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists, who knew there was such a thing? You're growing up in life, what are you going to do? Well, I'm going to be an itinerant Jewish exorcist. That's what I'm going to be in life. 
So these people undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by, the, uh, by, by uh, Jesus, whom Paul proclaims. Verse 14, seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this, but the evil spirits answered them, Jesus I know, Paul I recognize, but who are you? That's like that moment where you're like, uh-oh, this probably ain't going good. Verse 16, and the man in whom was the evil spirit leapt on them, mastered all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. Um, I have a friend who he loves every time he talks about this passage, he loves to take it back to like your elementary playground. And you know, if you just picture like a fourth or fifth grade, you know, a couple guys getting, you know, into a fight, there's always this, uh, there's always the debate on who won the fight. You know what I'm saying? I mean, in virtually every fight, there's going to be that debate on who, who exactly won. Except in this one, right? You, you know that if you came fully clothed and you left without any clothes, you know you lost the fight, right? The debate is over at that point. You, you lost. But look at verse 15. He says, Jesus I know, Paul I recognize, but who are you? Now, that just leads to the question, why in the world would these guys know Paul? I think the answer in this text is because God was using him to, in a lot of ways, rattle the, the sort of decaying little kingdom that all of these evil spirits were in. God was using him for that. And I can't help but read that and just ask God, God, would you, would you make us into the people that you're using for those sort of ends? If you've used people in the past to, for, for these sort of ends, God, God, could you use us for that? God, might you use us, this church, for, for that? God, would you, would you do that for us? Now, what you're going to see next in verse 17 and beyond is in a lot of ways a description of a revival that breaks out. But what you have happening next is repentance goes widespread now in Ephesus. God flexes in Ephesus to do some really amazing things. And I want to just give you a few descriptions of what we see happening in Ephesus. Like maybe you could think of it this way. What are some of those marks of revival that you and I can even now begin praying for in our particular area, in our church, that God would do these sort of things here and now? What are some of these marks? You see the first one in verse 17. So you have all these things happening now in Ephesus. And then in verse 17, and this became known to all the residents of Ephesus both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all. Here's Mark 1 of revival or repentance. Mark 1, reverence or an awe of God. God begins to pour out his spirit in such a way where people regain the awareness that God is there. That this is part of what's happening in a moment like this. God pours out his spirit in a way where God's power and presence are so evident that people who like one day ago were living as if God wasn't there, God is now unavoidably present in their life. I love how Martin Lloyd-Jones commenting on this passage, how he says it. He says, they immediately became aware of his presence and of his power in a manner that they had never known before. The people present began to have an awareness of spiritual things and clear views of them such as they had never had before. Spiritual things, I love this statement, spiritual things became realities. Do you know the problem a lot of us have? Spiritual things are not realities. 
They're abstract theories in our life. And in a moment like this, in a moment where God brings his power and his presence to our lives, what happens to to everyone who is involved in that is the cloud is wiped away. We're out of the faded sort of shadows now and God puts us in the brilliance of his power and his presence and God now becomes unavoidable. He becomes so real and so tangible to us. And what I love about this passage is it says all. They all, now that's a city of 300,000 people. It says that fear fell upon them all. 300,000 people in Acts 7, uh, chapter 19, verse 17, 300,000 people rediscovered God. Now, wouldn't that be something to see? Mark 2, Mark 1 is a reverence or an awe of God. Mark 2 is a recognition of Jesus. Revival comes about as people recognize Jesus. You see it in verse 17, the, the last part. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. See, part of what happens when we rediscover God is we rediscover a God who is just, right? Like that's not all like roses and, and nice things. We rediscover all of who God is and who God is is a just God who doesn't just like sweep our sin under the rug. And it's in that moment that we rediscover a just God that Jesus becomes really, really beautiful to us, doesn't he? It's in that moment that the life, death and resurrection of Jesus go from a nice little story that we want our kids to know to our only hope in life. It's that moment when we rediscover God This is now who Jesus becomes. His life, death, and resurrection isn't a cute story anymore. It is our only hope. And this is what's happening in Ephesus. And it makes me just ask the question, if then, why not now? What would it it look like for the DFW area to rediscover Jesus? For him to go from a nice story that they grew up kind of learning on a flannel board to he is what I'm banking on for my life. There was a recognition of Jesus. Here's Mark 3. There was conviction and and confession of sin. You see it in verse 18. Also, many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. They began to realize that what they had been caught up in, this sort of magic sort of a thing, all this stuff they had been kind of, you know, intertwined in, all of these false gods that they had been worshiping, all this stuff that they had been doing, they realized for the first time in their life that God looked at that and called that sin. This is what they're realizing. And when they realized that, it floored them. It cut them to the core they, they, they were seeing it from God's perspective. They were repulsed by it. And, and they confessed that to God. They, they opened up their, their life to Jesus. And it just makes me ask the question, what, gosh, if you did that then in this sort of a widespread citywide way, God, could you do it now? What if God were to give us just for like a one second moment, his perspective on the sin that's in our life. Do you know what it would do? It would cut us all the way to the core and that darling sin that we wanna keep kind of right here by our side, we would then be repulsed by it. We would then be willing and wanting to put that thing to death. 
conviction and confession of sins, Mark number three. Here's Mark number four. This renewed commitment to Jesus. Verse 19. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. Uh, Most commentaries don't know exactly what the number of that is, what the monetary value of that is, but they're all saying it's a lot of money. They just put a lot of money out there and burned it. Now, just think about what's happening here. They're they're repulsed by their sin. They see sin for what it is as an offense against God, as something that's gonna lead to their own death and destruction. They, They see it for what it is, and then they make a break from it. Their their lives are open to Jesus and they're saying, God, what does it look like for me now in this time and place? What does it look like for me to be faithful to you? For for me to take the next step towards you? And Jesus shows them. And basically they make this break from sin in in a sort of public and decisive way. It would be the equivalent of like everyone in Midlothian taking every access point to the pornography they're struggling with and throwing it out in the street and burning it. So computers are out there, their phones are out there, everything's out there. It would be that sort of an equivalent moment happening. (coughs) And this is one expression of what a renewed commitment to Jesus looks like. It's how, how do we not just leave sin coexisting in our life, but what does it look like for us to actually kill it? For us to actually turn from it as we're turning to Jesus. See, what's happening in this moment, in this renewed commitment to Jesus, it's the difference between what happens so often for us. We come into a moment like this and we hear a sermon and we think something like this. You know, that was a great point. I enjoyed listening to it. It was was good to hear. I I, I even enjoyed the conviction that kind of God gave me in the moment. I enjoyed all of that. It, It was a good morning. It's the difference in that and then this on the other side. I hear that. I am cut down to the core I confess and I, and I open up my life to Jesus in repentance. And I say, God, whatever, right now, not in a day from now, a week from now, in a year, right now, whatever it is that you want, God, I'm saying yes. Mark 4, this renewed commitment to Jesus. And Mark number 5, lastly, there was accelerated gospel advancement. God took their normal labors and then push the fast forward button on it so it's accomplishing times 20, times 30, times 40. You see it in verse 20. So the word of God continued to increase and prevail mightily. Wouldn't we love for that to be the story of our area? The word of God continued to increase and it was prevailing in every moment. It was prevailing mightily. So much so that this whole city was turned upside down. If you keep reading here in verses 23 and beyond, you have basically an upheaval happen in the city. And here's the reason. The people who all had their businesses tied to this uh, goddess Diana or this this goddess uh, Artemis, and, and much of the city was tied into her. This is how the economic kind of structure of the city was built around her. And now you have all of these people who are making a profit off of this idolatry in the city who they're looking at what's happening thinking, we're about to go broke in here. We we can't let this happen. You have a whole upheaval happen in the city because Jesus was so real and prevalent that people could no longer profit off their sin. Now think about that in the Dallas area. What if we just didn't even need a police department around here? What if there were no such thing as strip joints in the area? Because just nobody shows up at them. What if like the pornography industry goes bankrupt because there's just nobody, nobody going there? Nobody's purchasing, nobody's buying it. 
See, this is what's happening in Ephesus. Now, it makes me ask the question, could, God, could you do that today? Could you do that? And here's what's frustrating for me when I just think about that deep down in my own heart, that there's a part of me that's like, man, there's just no way. There's no way. And part of what this passage and Acts in general is meant to remind us is there really is a way. God, God really can do these sorts of things. And listen, this isn't just like in our ancient sort of biblical history. This is in our modern sort of present history as well. Let me just give you two stories and we'll be done. In the 1900, uh, 1900s, early 1900s, <clears throat> there was a powerful revival and just outpouring of the spirit that, that um, happened in Wales. And as it spread across the, the country, pastors literally saw thousands and thousands of conversions. Their churches just swelled in the early 1900s. Uh, the story is told of one uh, farmer's wife, her, her name was Mary Jones, who she personally led 70 people to Jesus in a short period of time. Uh, one kind of commentator on that revival and kind of what happened in Wales said this, drunkenness was immediately cut in half and many taverns went bankrupt. Crime was so diminished that judges were presented with white gloves signifying that there were no cases of murder, assault, rape, or robbery or the like to consider. The police became unemployed in many districts. Is that not good? They become unemployed in many districts. Stoppages occurred in coal mines, not due to unpleasantness between management and workers, but because so many foul-mouthed miners became converted and stopped using foul language that the horses, which hauled the coal trucks in the mines, could no longer understand what was being said to them. <laughs> Give me some of that. Wouldn't you love to see something like that now? And this, this has also happened in American history. The, the roughly 100-year period between 1740 and 1840 is known as the Great Awakening. It was two kind of waves of it in, in that 100-year period. Uh, many people marked the beginning of the Great Awakening with Jonathan Edwards' sermon, Sinners in the Hand of an Angry God. You might have come across that in an English class back in the day. Here's what happened post that sermon in Jonathan Edwards' particular town. Over a six-month period, he saw one-third of his town become Christians. In Midlothian right now, that would be, that would be eight or 9,000 people becoming Christians in the next six months. Eight or 9,000. He, he went on to say this about his, his city, his area. He said, there was scarcely a person in the town, either old or young, that was left unconcerned about the great things of the eternal world. I'm gonna read that one more time. There was scarcely a person in the town, either old or young, that was left unconcerned about the great things of the eternal world. Will you pray with me? Wouldn't we love to be able to say that in this area? There's just barely a person, young or old, that we know that is unconcerned with the things of God. <clears throat> I want to give you a moment to allow the Spirit of God to press into you the things that would be most helpful and the 
wipe away what wouldn't be. And <coughs> Maybe you could ask the Lord there where you are, what, what would be a next step that you would want from me? Maybe you could ask the Lord, do I, do I have an awe of you? Is there a tangible sort of recognition of Jesus in my life? Any, any, any area of my life that needs to be confessed and repented of today? Any places where a renewed, a renewed commitment toward Jesus would be appropriate and applicable? And oh God, would you, would you accelerate the advancement of the gospel? area. Maybe your first step today is to receive Jesus. If you've come in and you've been thinking about and investigating Jesus for a while, and maybe this is your moment to actually trust Jesus for the first time, to turn from your sin and to hold up your life to Jesus and to say, Jesus, I'm trusting in the life that you lived for me. You live perfectly in my place. I'm trusting in your sacrificial death where the wrath of God for my sin was poured out on you, God's perfect son. And I'm trusting in your resurrection that shows God the Father was fully satisfied with your life and your death. So I'm, I'm trusting in you, Jesus. So, so God, will you save me? God, I'm trusting you. Here's my life. Do, do what you will with it. And if that's you this morning, you can, you can talk to God, communicating those things to God. And we've got a prayer table set up right over here on, on the side of the room. We would love to meet you over there, to pray with you this morning, to really just begin that journey toward the Lord with you. So, oh God, we, we want to see you in an unfiltered, undiminished sort of way. God, convince us right now that our present experience of you is not, is not to the full reality and the full measure of who you are. So God, put a longing in us for more. Put a desire in us for more. God, will you please size up our prayer to the size of your power? God, would you, would you help us be a people who are praying in, in ways that reflect that we're praying to the God of this universe, the, the God who, who did Acts 19. God, will you help us pray in light of that? Believe in light of that? Oh God, would you do that? And it's in your good name that we're asking these things. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.